Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty, for I have come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jug and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you not see that the fields are white for the harvest? We're starting a series today on gospel proclamation. We have been talking a lot about gospel proclamation in general. We talked in the beginning of this year about the importance of being devoted to God's word. Over the next month and a half or so, we are going to be looking more directly, what does it look like for us to do good gospel proclamation? And I wanted to start with this story. Because I think in it, we get a sense for how Jesus saw the world. And I think in this passage, we also see why it is that we do gospel proclamation. So this is a long story. I'm not going to talk about every aspect of it. What I'd like to do today is to make a couple observations about the way Jesus approaches this woman and what that tells us about gospel proclamation. So laying the groundwork of the story a little bit, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for Passover. We find out in the first three verses here that ministry is going well. More and more people are coming to him and his disciples are baptizing, even to the extent that Jesus' ministry is starting to rival that of John the Baptist. And he's starting to get the unfavorable attention of the Pharisees. And so Jesus decides to leave Jerusalem and to go up to Galilee, which is in northern Israel. And to get there, the fastest route is through the area of Samaria. And then they stop about the sixth hour, so midday, for some lunch. The disciples go to the city to buy some food, and Jesus encounters this woman at the well. The first observation... I have about Jesus in this story is that Jesus breaks down barriers in order to meet the woman's needs. It doesn't necessarily strike us in the modern day as odd, this conversation. It would not be uncommon for today for a man and a woman to meet up in public and strike up a conversation. But in Jesus's day, in many ways, this conversation should not have happened according to the social rules that existed then. There were tremendous barriers between them. The first of them just being the fact that he was a man and she was a woman. At the time, what Jesus is doing here is engaging in behavior that might have been construed as inappropriate for various reasons. And in fact, you get a sense of that because when the disciples come in verse 27, it says they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They just don't want to ask. 
But there's a divide there. But that's also the smaller of the two. The bigger one is the fact that he is a Jew and that she is a Samaritan. And you see that right off the bat where Jesus goes and he asks her for a drink of water. And the first thing she asks him is, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Notice she brings up both the fact that she is a woman and that she's a Samaritan. Her first response is essentially, why are you talking to me at all? Because the Jews and Samaritans deeply disliked each other. The Samaritans only thought the first five books of the Old Testament were scripture. They believed that they, you were supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim and not in Jerusalem. They believed that the rest of Israel was apostate and that, that they were the true Israelites. There was a huge amount of religious and ethnic animosity that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so when Jesus asks for water, her first response is, why would you ask that from me? And I love Jesus' response here. What does he do? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He completely ignores it. In fact, he turns around, he says, you actually should have been asking me for water because if you knew who I was, you would know that I had living water. And I love the way that Jesus does this because you see this over and over in the Gospels where he takes all of the, the silly, selfish, petty barriers that we put up in human relationships, our racism, our ethnocentrism, our self-righteousism, our, our sexism, and he just breaks it down and ignores it. Why? Because he knows how desperately this woman needs the living water that only he can provide. And we see that need in this passage. One of them is very subtle. She's coming out in the middle of the day by herself to draw water. For the time, that was very atypical. Typically, she would have been going with a group of women for safety's sake and the company, and she would not be doing it in the heat of the day. She would have gone early or later. This is perhaps pointing to the fact that she may not be in great standing in her village. She may be an outcast. And we get a little bit of a window why. Jesus, in verse 16, says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the only one you now have is not your husband. We have another barrier here. She has a very broken past. It doesn't say here why she had had five husbands. But there's only two ways that ends, right? In death or in divorce. So this is pointing to a great deal of relational brokenness in her life. And even beyond that, Jesus points out, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. Now, Jesus also has a habit of doing this in the Gospels. He goes right for the heart. 
He goes for that thing that you really don't want him to point out, and he points it out. And he does that to this woman here. And he doesn't do it out of hatred, but he's doing it because it is showing the need that she has for that living water, that there is something there that she has been longing for. There's something there that she has been needing, not physically, but spiritually. And Jesus is pointing that out. And I think that is why he blows through every social barrier that was there, because he knows how desperately she needs the living water that only he can provide, that there is a longing there that she needs. And I find in this what I think is one of the great motivations that would draw us to do gospel proclamation. And it's because we recognize the spiritual need of those that are around us. But this takes spiritual eyes to see beyond just the physical to the spiritual needs that are there around us. That just like this woman, there are those around us who are entering into all sorts of things because there is a longing there, there is a spiritual need there that they are attempting to fill through everything that they can, but only Jesus is sufficient. And that should draw us to want to introduce them to him. And I would say beyond that, it's because also he's done that for us. We are no different than that woman in the sense that we too have that deep need. We too had a longing for something that we are tempted to fill with all sorts of things other than Jesus Christ, only to find that we are thirsty again, only to find that it's not satisfying, but Jesus is what has ultimately satisfied our spiritual hunger. And so too should that drive us to want to proclaim that to others. So that's the first observation that Jesus broke down barriers because he deeply cared about the spiritual needs of the woman. Second observation is that Jesus is continuing in the missionary work of the Father. So in the story, after Jesus brings up what is probably a very, very uncomfortable topic for her, uh, she deflects. She says... In verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she tries to turn the conversation. Understandable. And she turns it to what is one of the big theological disagreements between Jews and Samaritans, which is where they should worship. And Jesus allows it. He allows the conversation to go that way, but he again turns it by changing the conversation about where it is to worship and instead to what is the heart of worship that God is looking for. And he says that the kind of worship that God wants is that which is in spirit and in truth. Now, that is a big topic that I'm honestly not going to give a lot of time to today about what spirit and truth and what worship like that looks like. But I did like, I want to share this quote from D.A. Carson, who wrote a commentary on John that I thought encapsulated what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth. He says that it's God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit and in personal knowledge and conformity to God's word. It is accordance to the truth of God's word as well as the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And this is the kind of worship that God is seeking But note that word, the Father is seeking. 
Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, that could just mean that's what the Father's looking for, that's the kind of worship he wants, but I think it's more than that. Because if you look at the Old Testament, really the whole totality of Scripture, what you see over and over and over again is that God is seeking after people. He is seeking after a people. He was seeking after Israel in the Old Testament. And he was seeking after them, not just for their sake, but so that they could be a light to the nations, so that other nations would look in and come to understand who the true God was, so that they would be a blessing to the nations. This has been something that is over and over in Scripture, is that we have a missionary God. God does not sit around and wait. God pursues. He is seeking after those who will worship him. John Piper has this great, great quote. He says, mission exists because worship does not. Now, there may be part of us that goes, well, isn't that selfish? How God's seeking worship for himself. But I think there's two things that make me say no to that. One is that it's God. And he is just infinitely worthy of worship. It is why we were created so no, it is not selfish for him to pursue it. But also, our greatest good is found in the salvation of Jesus that leads us towards that worship. God has crafted it that way. So it is not selfish when God seeks it because it is also one of his primary ways of giving to us. So I think here we see another foundational motivation for gospel proclamation. One, yes, we do it from compassion about people's spiritual needs, but we also do it because we desire to see the God we love worshipped in spirit and in truth. A third observation is that God goes before us in gospel proclamation. So after continuing in the story, Jesus reveals very directly to her that he is the Messiah. Verse 25, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's remarkable. There are only a couple of places in the Gospels where you see Jesus be that absolutely direct about who he is. And here we see him reveal himself and who he is so clearly to who is probably the least likely person from any kind of social standing of that day. I love that. So he reveals who he is and in response, she goes to the village and says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And so the Samaritans are all coming out now to see Jesus. Now, in the meantime, the disciples come back. And we already talked about the fact that they decide not to ask why he's talking to a woman. And they bring Jesus his food. And Jesus uses this opportunity, in some ways similar to the woman, to move their eyes away from physical things to spiritual things. And he does it in two ways. First, he talks about the food. And he says, I have food that you do not know about, which is the word of God and to do the word of God. Turning their attention away from lunch 
<laughs> to the bigger things, the bigger spiritual realities that are around them. But the one I want to focus on comes after that, where he says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Jesus is teaching his disciples to see their circumstances from a spiritual perspective. And he uses a couple of images around a harvest, this image of an abundant harvest, where there are these ongoing patterns of sowing and reaping such that the sower and the reaper are rejoicing together. This image of the harvest that is ready, right? The fields are white for the harvest. And I if, you, if I can use my imagination here for just a second, but I don't think this is too much of a stretch. I always have this picture when I hear this of the Samaritans coming out of the village to see Jesus. And Jesus telling his disciples, look and see that the field is white for the harvest. Understand what is going on here Yes, physically, this, this is a people group you don't like. I know you thought we were just here to buy lunch, but look, the field is white for the harvest. This lunch spot turns into a two days of him spending time with the people of this village. Look, the field is white for the harvest. And then he also points out that the disciples are being sent out to reap where they did not sow. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus saw the fields that were ripe for the harvest and he also is pointing out to the disciples, there has been work done here before you ever came. Now that to me leads to an interesting question. Who was doing that work? Who was sowing amongst the Samaritans before Jesus came? Now, it's certainly possible that God had sent people. But I think it is striking that this comes after Jesus has talked about the fact that the Father is seeking for those who will worship in spirit and truth. Which leads me to think that the one who's been doing the sowing, the one who's been preparing the way, whatever that looked like, was the Father himself. The Father had been doing work in this Samaritan village long before Jesus and the disciples showed up there. And I see this as being one of the great encouragements around gospel proclamation is the fact that when we enter into it, we are not getting ahead of God. God has always gone before us, and we are just coming in and entering into the work that he has already started. He had done it here with the Samaritans. We see it happening all through the Gospels, all through Acts, and this is what God does. He is a God who is seeking. He is a God who is going after people, and we are not going to outrace him. But that should be a great encouragement to us that we do not go in alone. In fact, we go into places where there has already been 
God at work. We see here that many of the Samaritans come out and see Jesus. And I love this, that they tell her, it's no longer because of what you said, but now we have seen. And I think that right there, that is the joy of gospel proclamation. When we get to see others come into a relationship with the Savior that we know and love. So we are entering a season where I want to call the church to be doing intentional gospel proclamation. And to start that, I want to invite you to sort of follow suit with John 4 in in seeing the spiritual realities around you. To see the spiritual need of the people around you and to begin to hope to see them worship God in spirit and in truth. For God to show you the places where he is already at work, where the fields are ripe for the harvest, and where he may be asking you to join him in that work. To begin to see your neighborhoods, workplaces, friends and families, not just with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes, seeing the spiritual realities that are there, the spiritual needs that are there, and the opportunities that are there because of the work that God is already doing. Specifically, this week, I would like to call you all to begin praying that God would help you to see where he is at work and where he would have you join him in that work during this coming season. Amen? Amen. All right, well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, you sought us while we were yet sinners. You pursued us. And Lord, we know that you are a missionary God. You are a God who is constantly seeking those who are lost, those who are in need. And so I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see those around us, that you would show us where you are at work and call us, God, into that labor. All these things I pray in your name. Amen.